Gerontological Society of America, Meaningful Lives as We Age. Welcome to GSA Policy Profiles, providing insights into current aging-related policy issues from those at the forefront working to develop evidence-based policy. Welcome to the GSA Policy Profiles. I'm Trish D'Antonio, Vice President of Policy and Professional Affairs at the Gerontological Society of America. And today we're going to delve into the topic of a new FDA regulation that provides for hearing aids to be sold over the counter without a prescription. I am here with Dr. Frank Lynn, Director of the Cochlear Center for Hearing and Public Health at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. He is also Professor of Otolaryngology, Head and Neck Surgery at Johns Hopkins. He has been at the forefront of this issue, and he will be providing us with some insight into these new regulations and address the implications that they could have on older adults. As a multidisciplinary society with over 5,000 members, we have seen the research that has been conducted on the impact of poor hearing and hearing loss on older people, such as poor daily communication, cognitive decline, depression, and social isolation. GSA advocated for the legislation in 2017 and for the FDA guidance and regulation to provide access to over-the-counter hearing aids. We know that all too often the high cost of hearing aids, which have not been covered by Medicare, discouraged millions of older people from buying these devices. In fact, it is estimated that only about one-fifth of people in this country with hearing loss get help. I understand that the new regulation takes effect in October, and I'm excited to learn more from our guests today. So welcome, Frank, and and to get started, could you tell us a bit about yourself and how you became involved in this issue? You know, well, first, Trish, you know, thanks for having me on the podcast. And, you know, it's been really an incredible partnership with GSA over the last five years, really getting these regulations across the goal line finally. So, you know, by way of brief background, like you mentioned, I'm an otolaryngologist or an ENT surgeon at Johns Hopkins, but how I spend the majority of my time is directing a public health research center at the Bloomberg School of Public Health, focused on really thinking about and addressing broadly the impact of hearing loss on older adults, not only through, you know, I would say more classical epidemiology studies, but then also going to clinical trials. And then more importantly, you know, what's really near and dear to my heart is then actually directly changing a policy that can actually have a meaningful effect on you know, the people that we see, the people we care about, our patients, our family members and friends. So, you know, basically really translating as best we can to epidemiology all the way through the life cycle, all the way to actually policy that impacts people who are living it, not just, uh, you know, us researchers who are thinking about it. Right. It's so important. And I think GSA, all our members, that's our mission, right? Translate that research into the practice and policy to benefit us all for meaningful lives. Can you provide us some insight into the key elements of the new regulations and how older adults are? So, you know, big picture, Trish, like you mentioned before, is a lot of people have hearing loss. I mean, the prevalence of hearing loss, it doubles every age decade. I mean, uh, two thirds of everyone over 70 has a hearing loss. I mean, this is all of us, not just those people with hearing loss. It's every one of us, everyone loses hearing as we age. And yet at the same time, like you mentioned before, the rates of just something as basic as a hearing aid is less than 20%. And you know, in part, uh, there are a lot of reasons for that, not just one thing, but I'll say there are several. So one is cost. I mean, the average cost of a pair of hearing aids that we estimated working at the National Academies a few years ago was, you know, $4,700 for a pair of hearing aids, which, you know, put that in perspective. I mean, that means for the average American, it could be their third largest material purchase life after a house and a car, which is 
crazy, right? And then there's also issues of access, only way to, you know, in the past, not in the future, but in the past, to get a hearing aid, which you had to make multiple trips to an ENT like me or an audiologist or, or hearing aid technician, which is, um, you know, doable for some people, but not doable for a lot of other people, not in terms of the hassle, but the time involved. And just honestly, some people don't have the means to do that. So, I, I, and then also just broadly issues of technology and, you know, why is it integrated with, with uh, my lifestyle, things like that. So a lot of these root cause issues, if you think about enough from a policy perspective, can actually be traced back, uh, it sounds crazy to say this, but to actually how hearing aids are regulated. So the old regulatory hearing aids were set in place in 1977. And when they were established back then, what they effectively said is that hearing aids could only be sold through a licensed provider, namely like an ENT or an audiologist, and they couldn't be sold directly with a counter. And listen, that made sense 45 years ago because the only way for a hearing aid to be safe and effective 45 years ago was it really had to be given through a licensed provider who could properly program the analog device and make sure it's fit and it wasn't too loud and things like that. Fast forward 45 years later, it's not the case anymore. So what's happening now is the FDA has fundamentally changed the regulations after eight years of working with the National Academies, the White House and Congress has finally happened. And with these new regulations, it basically means that hearing aids can be directly sold to consumers without a licensed provider involved. And yet there'll be very specific technical requirements placed in these hearing aids so that you'll know they'll be safe and effective as a consumer, much like you go to a store right now, you buy over-the-counter a Tylenol or acetaminophen or ibuprofen, you know that it's, it's safe and effective because they've been regulated be such. That's what's going to be happening to hearing aids, which is incredibly exciting because that's what it finally allows really a lot more innovation in the space. Right now, let's say tongue-in-cheek companies like Apple or Samsung, they're already making very sophisticated hearable devices. In the past, they would never be able to enter the hearing aid market because they couldn't sell directly to consumers, which is, that's what they do. This is what allows all of a sudden, a I would say, a fresh breath of innovation and competition to finally affect the marketplace, which benefits consumers, which benefits public health, benefits just overall competition as a whole. So it's, it's really a win-win-win all around. Yeah, I you know I can see that, and I and I hear your enthusiasm here. You know, you talked about some of the specific technical requirements, and I was wondering. I know one of them is the definition of mild and the definition of moderate hearing loss. Mm. I wonder if you could take us through that a little bit so that older people and people who care for them and our members Mm -hmm. all experience hearing loss based. If we understand the prevalence, we're all experiencing hearing loss. We could all understand that. So there there are a couple of ways to answer that. I'll give you sort of um, the um, the current answer and then really actually an exciting thing I'm going to announce is as of um, this week, actually, we're announcing a, a new public health initiative from School of Public Health which is so people can actually know and how to monitor their hearing over time. So to know whether you quote unquote mild or moderate. Uh, the first side of the equation, though, in terms of what mild to moderate means, I mean, there, there are different ways of rating your hearing loss based on the severity, right? The key thing is when we essentially drafted these recommendations as a part of the National Academies and what got taken on by bipartisan legislation, which then affected the, white, uh, the, the FDA's rules, is we fully intended for these hearing aids to be applicable and to be able to help people with a mild to moderate hearing loss. So what does that mean? That's basically essentially 90 to 95% of the people with hearing loss out there have a mild to moderate hearing loss. So this is a vast majority <laughs> of Americans who have something in a mild to moderate range that will benefit from these devices. Now, there are people who have hearing losses beyond that, more what we call the severe range, that's usually not very subtle. I mean, those are people who you'll know they're really, really struggling. Even then, those folks, it's not that you wouldn't 
benefit from OTC hearing. They would still help to some extent, but you would benefit far more from more of like a prescription-like device that's custom fit by an audiologist. That. So um, a lot of times it's not so important to know what level your hearing loss is. It's just if you if you feel like you're struggling to communicate, more importantly, people are telling you that you're struggling to communicate. It's the running joke always is that you may not know, but everyone else around you knows. It is uh, very, very likely an OTC hearing aid will like be able to benefit you based on the severity of your hearing loss. Again, short of like having a really, really severe profound, which usually is not too subtle, where you, again, would likely benefit more from prescription device, right? So, and, you know, usually, again, who would benefit? It's those classic stories of people saying, you know, I'm misunderstanding you, you're constantly mumbling at me, I mean, or that's what you're noticing yourself. I mean, that's what the mild and moderate hearing loss is, and that's who would benefit from these devices. Now, the, the, the other uh, nuancing of this is we're really excited. We've been playing for a year and a half from the, from the Bloomberg School of Public Health is that you realize for any other chronic health condition out there, uh, let's say high blood pressure, uh, diabetes, uh, high cholesterol, a lot of times from a consumer-facing side, there's actually a metric that consumers just know to monitor a little bit over time. They know what that number means. So you might roughly know your blood pressure. Uh, you might, if you're if you're diabetic, you may track your glucose. So you know that, you know, glucose around 90 is great. And it's 160, 180, eh, not so great, right? Um, likewise, the same thing for uh, cholesterol. You're under 200. Yeah, it's pretty good. If you're creeping up over, not ideal. You might want to change lifestyle behaviors. So it's, um, uh, that it's a common thing for a lot of consumers, patients, that there's some consumer facing metric that people know about. It's not the only metric, but it's just one that you can track. Hearing, uh, you realize there's, there's nothing on the consumer facing side. We're left with these terms, like you mentioned before, mild, modern, like no one knows what that means. And yet there are, there's a one really good metric we use all the time clinically for research purposes, but we never report back to patients, which is basically called the four frequency pure tone average. It's basically, it's measured from your audiogram. It's roughly between zero and a hundred. And it basically just represents how loud sounds have to be for you to hear it. So zero would be like, you're great here. You're hearing really soft sounds. hundred is like, you're profoundly, you have a profound hearing loss. It sounds be hundred decibels, which is really loud for you to hear it. That metric is amazing because that's the metric that we use to uh, link hearing loss epidemiology with you know bad outcomes. That's how we measure hearing. Yet no one knows that number. Amazingly, that number now, in just in the last few years, all of a sudden meeting this criteria becoming a really useful patient-facing metric because it's accessible. Right now on the um, iPhone platform, you can go into the health app, you can measure your audiogram, and it gives you your hearing number. Yeah. So, um, you know, and then at the same time now, if you know your hearing number and it's creeping into a range it's going over time, you can act on it. You can get, you go get an OTC hearing aid. And I'll tell you that number two is the whole basis of how we classify hearing loss. It's a whole basis of understanding risk around hearing loss and like conditions like dementia. So the campaign, I'll flag and put a plug out there for right now. It's broadly called the Know Your Hearing Number Initiative. The website is www.hearingnumber.org. And it's being run out of the Bloomberg School of Public Health. We are actively seeking out collaborations primarily on the consumer tech and industry side things. Because mm -hmm. what consumer tech wants to do is, as they have these wonderful technologies for consumers that can benefit them, the question is, how do they communicate what they have to consumers, so consumers understand what it is around using terms, you know, mild hearing, moderate hearing loss. But if consumers understood their metric, it can shape behaviors. And last, I know I'm going on about this a little bit, but I'll, I'll just give yeah, one really, great. one really pithy example of this. So my my hearing number <laughs> is a 12 in my right ear and 10 in my left ear. So, and we typically say if you're better than 20, less than 20, that's considered the normal range of hearing. Like you hear sounds softer than 20 decibels, which is like a soft whisper. So my, as a 45-year-old man, my hearing is completely in the normal range, right? 
but case in point, I had my daughter who's 16 years old recently do get her hearing number from her iPhone. And hers is a negative three, right? And listen, that's that's really soft sounds. And listen, that's to be expected because she's 16 years old and mm-hmm. she's healthy. And that's that's normal for someone that age. So when I saw her hearing, which is also normal, and I looked at mine, I was like, wait a minute, I've gone from probably, I'm assuming I probably was like a negative three when I was her age, now to 12. So I've, dr- I've dropped per se 15 decibels, but it sounds to be 15 decibels louder for me to hear it. And I'll tell you, 15 decibels, that's a big shift. And yet, like, it's so considered normal, which is broadly. But in the last 30 years of my life, no surprise, my hearing number has gone down a bit, right? And listen, 10 years from now, my hearing number may be like, I don't know, 20, which is still, quote, unquote, normal. But I can guarantee you that's going to affect what I can hear. So ever since then... And, you know, I measure this all on my, I, I use an iPhone and, you know, right now as I'm talking to you, I'm using this AirPod Pro. So with the Apple platform right now, if you plug in your audiogram that you do on the phone, you can customize the output of your, your AirPods. So it, yeah, it adjusts it based on your level of hearing. And at first I didn't like it because, you know, environmental sound, I was walking on the street, I, you know, the, the transparency, so things sound a little loud and I was hearing like these little clicks I don't normally hear. But I sort of kind of used to it now, right? So I started to use my AirPods as hearing aids. Even though, listen, I have normal hearing. And yet the sounds that it's amplifying for me are probably sounds I don't hear anymore. My daughter does, right? Listen, I, I have normal hearing, right? But it's, um, it shifts the dynamic how you think about hearing. It's not this binary condition. It, it's, it's a lifestyle thing over your whole lifetime. So we're really excited about the hearing numbers. We think it really can shift behaviors. And which is even more applicable now, there are actually solutions for it that are readily available. And that's incredible. So I think about if I'm talking on the phone with a family member that might have some moderate hearing loss and we're able to make this shift, I don't feel like I have to shout on the phone anymore. To the, I mean, it, they're subtle things, it's, but it's just really everyday impact. Yeah. So, And I think that's the problem in the past. Hearing loss has always been the scene as like, you either have it or you don't. <laughs> just like a dumb way of viewing it, right? It's this constant thing, just like you get a little more white hair over time. So like all of a sudden you have one day of white hair, right? I might have popped here for the last decade. It's the same thing with hearing. It crops up a little bit at a time. So then all of a sudden one day you need a hearing aid. That's just the dumbest thing I've ever heard of my life. Yeah, that's that's how it's commonly perceived. It's like right now I'm 45, I have normal hearing, but I'm already beginning to use my AirPods as slight amplification devices. Every now and then, like right now when I'm talking to you right now, I'm using my AirPods, it's actually slightly amplifying it based on my hearing. Not that I really quote unquote need it, but if I don't have it on, I sort of notice it. I notice it sounds better when it's on, actually. Right. right? And, it, and it shows so, the life force um, issue, right? I mean, this is a life force issue. This is not an issue only for people over the age of 60 or people over the age of 65. No, it's it's for people like me who's 45, right? Or even for me like 10 years ago. But that's what makes this, I think, the hearing number campaign really useful because it's not about labeling. It's about it's just knowing a metric of your health and then it cluing you into when you might want to adopt like the sound the customization feature on your phone. And then later on, you get an OTC hearing aid. And I don't know, later on, maybe get a prescription hearing aid, right? right. It, it is very much a life course thing. So that's why we're super excited about this campaign, potentially the partnerships with, you know, organizations like GSA and other professional groups and also the industry to really push us forward. It's, just, it's, it's an idea that raises all boats per se in terms of helping consumers, helping industry connect consumers with technology that help them and things like that. Well, I'm so excited that we're breaking this news on our podcast. And again, <laughs> it's hearingnumber.org, right? Is that is the, right. Is the yep. website. Okay. So because this is a policy website, I have to get back to a little bit about the regulation. 
if that's okay. You know, what do you see are some of the short term? So the short term impacts seem like they're happening now. I mean, there's already some things happening as you describe what Apple is doing, what other companies like Apple are doing. Um, What are some other short term impacts and then some long term impacts for the regulation? Yeah. So. Like you mentioned before, the, the way the, um, the the final regs were released August 17th, 2022, yeah. so just you know, a, few, a couple weeks ago, and then they'll go into effect in the Federal Register as of October 18th, 2022, right? So two months from now, devices can start being marked and, hit the, and start hitting the shelves, per se. And we expect early on there will be likely uh, at least a couple that hit the shelves really quickly because these companies actually have been preparing for this for over two years now. <laughs> so they're prepared to act very quickly. Whereas... Other companies who are just moving to space right now, they'll still need to um, uh, seek approval for the devices from FDA. So this is actually very important. But FDA has uh, initiated, it's going to be a 510K pathway, a pre-market notification pathway. And that's, if you ask me, that is really the sweet spot. That basically means for a company to market their product at OTC hearing aid, they need to submit at least some basic level of uh, documentation, evidence that their devices meet the specs. And that's great because it, even though it adds a regulatory barrier slightly, it's good in the initial phase of the rollout because then you, you can be insured as a consumer. If you see something labeled as OTC hearing aid, it really actually went through some basic vetting to ensure it's meeting performance criteria. So I think early on, beginning of October, you already see some devices on the shelves per se, but likely in the next year, it's going to be a much more aggressive rollout of the devices because this is, it's pretty crazy to say this, Trish. It's not often you see a completely new classification advice is all of a sudden being bam available to consumers and right. from a consu- from an industry point of view this is 40 million people right of which the only solution right now for a lot of consumers is spend five thousand hours on a pair of hearing so there's a lot of room here for innovation competition carving out niches right it's it's from a business point of view you say it's the market has never been fully segmented right people have segmented the market for people but people can afford five thousand dollars essentially and the rest of the market's like ah you know forget them right there's a tremendous amount of opportunity, which makes it really, really cool. At the same time, I'll say too, it's um, another thing, not, not only the devices, but people are still figuring out even what is the channel for sales, the sales channel, right? Is this being sold through a Walgreens or CVS? Is it being sold through a Best Buy? Is it being sold through Costco? I mean, what is a sales channel? And it's probably any and all in the end. And yet for these retailers, they've never had to really do this before. I mean, CVS, Walgreens have really sold hearing aids right over the counter. They never have. You know, Best Buy, I'll tell you, has been pretty aggressive in the space. Best Buy, as soon as the regs were launched, um, they announced that they're uh, setting up a Best Buy hearing center, <laughs> right? Um, so I think um, there's a there's going to be, a, it's, it's going to be a, a, in, I'll say, well, in, a, in a good way and bad way, I guess, in the next couple of years, the wild, wild west out there, right? People are going to be seeing what sticks to the wall and, this is, I guess, the beauty in some ways. And I'm, I'm relatively left-leaning liberal for some things, but I really believe I really believe in capitalism to some extent. This is where capitalism does its good thing because there are many ways to get to um, the final prize, per se, of ensuring that consumers' needs are met here. Right. And there are probably many ways to do it, and there'll be many people exploring how to best do it. And of course, there's opportunity for us to continue to be active in monitoring this because as with any regulation, there may be times that there needs to be some modification or there needs to be some changes because when we get out into practice, we start to see some other things that maybe weren't contemplated. So certainly, you know, I see this opportunity for not only GSA, but for others who've been advocating along the lines to continue to monitor how this works in practical settings. And then also, I think, 
how we're educating consumers about what does this mean, right? There's so much opportunity here and necessary opportunity, you know, necessary pieces here so that we make sure consumers and caregivers are are using this correctly, right? So that- that, That's absolutely right. Yeah. And, 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 you know, Trisha, you know, and from a policy lens, I'll tell you one thing that, you know, we worked with you guys on about a year ago now, and we hope to continue essentially raise this issue again, hopefully as soon as next year again, is the issue of Medicare coverage. So Medicare, as you know, all of us knows, traditional Medicare does not cover, it's a statutory exclusion, anything around hearing aids or any hearing aid related services, right? But what's really needed though, going forward is that even though hearing aids, over-the-counter hearing aids will be hitting the market, we we expect them to be uh, eventually, uh, hopefully the next year or so already in the cost range of most, you know, hearable like devices, you know, hundreds, a few in the low hundreds at best, essentially. But at the same time, many people, many people could still benefit from the professional services of an audiologist to get professionally tested, to guide them about what the best OTC strategies are, guide them whether or not they want to consider pressure. So basically, unbiased professional advice is still, for many people, always helpful, probably, right? But the problem is right now, under traditional Medicare, audiologists cannot, they're not reimbursed to provide such services to patients. They can, they can do a hearing test, but anything around counseling, education, nope, zip, zada, zip, not none, right? So, you know, last year with the Build Back Better Act, this was one of our, uh, we thought it was one of our coup de grace was that we actually got a Medicare hearing benefit advanced as part of Build Back Better Act, which would have, we really felt that it would have been the sweet spot if it gotten passed. It would have basically, for everybody, uh, Medicare would have covered hearing rehab, hearing care services. So anybody with hearing could just see an audiology professional services. Then if you had a mild to moderate hearing loss, uh, Medicare wouldn't cover your hearing aid. You're expected to buy your own, which isn't unreasonable. Why should you know our tax dollars pay for someone's Apple hearing aids, you know, tongue in cheek, right? But it made sense. If hearing aids are readily available over the counter, they're inexpensive, then sure, there's no reason Medicare needs to pay for it. But then if you had a more severe hearing loss, then a prescription hearing aids were covered. So we thought that was a sweet spot where Medicare would, you know, essentially split the difference with consumers. You, we cover your services, hearing aids. If you have a mild to moderate, you're covering your own because it's it's relatively inexpensive. More severe, then yes, we cover prescription hearing aids. So that did not get advanced as part of the Build Back Better Act. You know, fortunately, as, as all of us know, the Inflation Reduction Act uh, was signed to law just last week, which includes a tremendous cost savings for Medicare in terms of prescription drug coverage. The um, Despite the efforts of, uh, of uh, Senator Sanders, uh, he wasn't able to continue to advance the, the hearing benefit, just had, had to be a stripped down bill. But we certainly hope in the future we'll be able to advance again the Medicare legislation because I think that it gets in sweet spot. Many people still need the professional service and audiology to guide them. And that's what we really need covered, irrespective of almost the coverage, coverage for hearing aids. And we think there hopefully may be a window in the next couple of years. You know, a big thing that we're hoping may drive this, this, um, this push again is uh, with the maturation of an OTC hearing market. So uh, policymakers can see that they're actually widely available OTC hearing aids are inexpensive, but that people still need services, right? So that's one thing. So right. it shows that the cost to Medicare in the end does not have to be extreme. Because you're not covering hearing aids for a lot of people. You're just covering the services, right? Which is different. At the same time, you know, a big uh, NIA, National Institute on Aging Funded Trial, we've been, uh, that I've been leading now for the last five years, since I can't believe it's finally wrapping up end of this year with the results available next year. It's this very basic question that we alluded to before that, we see epidemiologically hearing loss is arguably the largest risk factor now for dementia. But does that mean if we treat hearing loss, does that actually reduce the risk of cognitive decline or dementia? That is what this, it's called the ACHIEVE trial, which is being funded by our, our NIA dollars, our tax dollars. We've run it for five years. A trial finishes up at the end of this year. So next year, 
Uh, second quarter of next year, we will have a trial readout results of whether or not treating hearing loss among older adults with a mild to moderate hearing loss doesn't affect reduce your risk of things like cognitive decline, dementia, healthcare costs, uh, brain structural atrophy, MRI. We'll have definitive trial results of that next year. And we're hoping with that in hand, hopefully it shows some type of positive effect with the maturation OTC market. We have another window again to work with congressional policymakers to advance some type of Medicare legislation. That that would be so impactful. And as, as you know, in, in discussions that we've had talking about GSA's activity around improving supports for oral health care, hearing health, vision, you know, what many beneficiaries are quite surprised to learn that they do not have benefits to support. And those are so key in our continuing participation in society. And it just seems I've seen and heard so many stories of people just being shocked that Medicare does not cover these services. So continue to advocate on on behalf. And so we're so um, so pleased to be able to work with you and your colleagues at, at Johns Hopkins, along with other GSA members, to continue to advance policies such as these. As we're getting ready to wrap up today, I'm just wondering, where would our listeners go to get more information? So I think you, you mm-hmm. talked a little bit about the new initiative at Johns Hopkins, are, are there other places if the, if you if that you would recommend that we take a look at or that we post as part of this? Yes, yeah, so I think it, it depends what lens you're coming through. If you're coming through the lens of uh, what can I do, let's say for my patients per se, or myself, or a family member, so very much individual perspective of uh, great. Now I think here is important. The solution what to do. I think there are a few. I think one is again that you know hearingnumber.org campaign actually lists again knowing your hearing number, but they also list some of the strategies and orient you to what OTC devices. That's a simple use website, hearingnumber.org, that's out there. Um, I, I feel weird saying this, but also just I, I, we, my colleague and I, we, we've recently written a book actually with AARP. Uh, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's called Hearing Loss for Dummies, right? So it's the four dummy series that AARP does some topics with. And um, a year ago, they asked us um, if uh, my colleague Nick Reed and I is audiologist. My colleague at Johns Hopkins also an epidemiologist. We'd be interested in writing a book on um, basically hearing loss for dummies. So you know, it, it, it's funny. I was like, sort of sheepishly, I was like, huh? Because in the past, as you know, I'm, I'm a professor at Hopkins. I always get approached to do various academic books. I always say no because. I, I honestly, I don't want to spend effort on something no one's going to read, which is what happens right. on academic books. But, you know, um, I said yes to this one because I realized if you look at the numbers for dummies book, people actually read this. And I went to my parents' house and I saw they had all these four dummies books on their shelf. I was like, mom, you read these? She's like, yeah, I buy them all the time. So, um, you know, that that book is coming out actually, you know, I think next week on Amazon, it's Hearing Lost for Dummies. And there's a whole section on the hearing number. There's a section on OTC hearing aids. So I I, I feel weird. Plug- I'm not trying to plug no, it. I'm saying I- if you... It's uh, it's it's something there that it's 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 very near dear to my heart because it's actually hoping to directly inform, you know, consumers. So um, I think that's at the more individual end. Hopefully, the website and something like the book could help. And then, um, otherwise, from the research side of things, um, yeah. you know, our, our website at Hopkins, we have policy briefs around um, around Medicare uh, updates around what OTC means, and that's um, I mean, the website for that very briefly is jhucochlearcenter.org. Um, uh, and that's just, it's an academic website. So that's more for, I would say, the researchers and audience of like who wants to 
broader policy understanding of what's going on. Um, I will say in the same breath, the website's getting a complete re- we've been we've been working on it for the last six months. We're completely redoing the website with, with outside agency, which is being relaunched end of this year. But the, the website still works right now. It's a little it's 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 um it's gotten clunky over the years because on adding more stuff to it. It's going to be have, have a whole refresh in the next few months as well, which will make it easier to navigate. That'll be great. And then of course GSA has our interest group related to sensory activities, and so what's really important there, I think, is. Other members, please share resources. I, I would call us all out to be sure that we're sharing those resources on the Interest Group Connect platform, because that'll be someplace where we can continue to build those resources. Well, I have been so enjoyed having this conversation and, I, you know, it's, it's incredible. So, so much activity around this, I think, ultimately to benefit older people and to continue to advance our vision of meaningful lives as we age. So I just want to thank you for providing our listeners with a great overview of the activities around over-the-counter hearing aids and for the potential positive impact on lives of older people. So thank you so much for listening today for GSA's Policy Profile. And this is Trish Antonio signing off. The Gerontological Society of America was founded in 1945 to promote the scientific study of aging, to cultivate excellence in interdisciplinary aging research and education, to advance innovations in practice and policy. For more information about GSA, visit geron.org or G-E-R-O-N dot O-R-G. 